This sermon was preached by Caleb Bunch, head pastor and church planner of Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa, New York. Redeeming Grace was planted in 2015 and is seeking to reach central Nassau County with the gospel. You can find sermons from this series and many others at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Today we're going to go ahead and continue uh, with our sermon series in Mark. We haven't been in Mark uh, since the beginning of the summer because, as you know, we took a diversion this summer to study through the book of Genesis, chapter 1 through 11. And as we had been doing that, we had been seeing the foreshadowing of Christ as it is presented. We have seen Christ over and over and over in Genesis. But as we have done that... What we have been seeing are types and shadows. I am so excited to move back into Mark now because we see Jesus, the perfect, holy, eternal Son of God, who actually came down and lived among us. And we are going to see the one that was foretold and foreshadowed and over and over and over in our study in Genesis who is pointed to. And we are going to see him speaking. And we are going to see him teaching. And we are going to even see him this morning being rejected. Just to recap where we left off in the book of Mark. We left Mark, we finished chapter 5, and in chapter 5, the last several things that we saw were Jesus casting the demon out of a demon-possessed man who was barbaric in nature, and Jesus healed this man, and he came into his right mind, and this man had gone out into the Decapolis, which, by the way, means the ten cities, proclaiming and declaring the goodness of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. In this moment, Jesus cast the demon, the legion, the demons, into the herd of swine. And as you know from that story, they went into the lake and they drowned. All of these pigs died. And this, by the way, would have been an incredible loss for the people of that region, financially speaking. Pigs were expensive, and pigs cost, uh, they would make a lot of money from them, selling them to the Romans who were inhabiting the land. This was a major source of income. So this region would have lost a lot of money, and Jesus would have been the one who was responsible. And so they would look at this, and they knew of Jesus. Who is the one who ruined the bacon? That was Jesus. Jesus is the one that cast the demons out, and the demons went into the water. People are learning about him. He is very well known in the region. Jesus is receiving many followers as they are coming to listen to him as he's teaching and preaching. And so the the last stories that we see of Jesus is trying to make his way through a city, and one woman coming who has had the issue of blood for 12 years. And so Jesus heals her as she reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And then we see Jesus going into the house of this young girl who's 12 years old and raising her from the dead. Jesus is receiving a following. Everyone knows who he is. And that is where we come to today as we return to the book of Mark. We begin at chapter 6, verse 1. Please turn there if you're not there already as we continue in the book of Mark. Start reading with me at verse 1. He went away from there... And came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. This is a very interesting step in the life of Christ. This is not the first time that Jesus has returned to Nazareth during his ministry, although it is the first time we see it here in the book of Mark. When Jesus goes back, it's a homecoming. 
going home should be a sweet time. It should be a time of fellowship. It should be a time where people are excited to see you and catch up. However, Jesus is now a celebrity, and the people had been hearing reports of him coming from all around the region. So when he goes, the people who are from Nazareth are skeptical. We see that they are uncertain of what they should think about this Jesus, the one who is so powerful and who they are hearing has even raised a girl from the dead. So notice verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. It was shocking to the people that this man, this Jesus, who lived among them for about 25 years, that this Jesus could be saying these things, that this Jesus could be this righteous, this uh, accurate about the scriptures, could be this well-spoken. So when we come to this, we see that it appears even the Nazarenes had begun to believe the commonly held thinking and the statement that was often repeated, can anything good come from Nazareth? We see this in the way they speak about Jesus to one another. The people of Nazareth respond to the teaching of Jesus here with five questions. They ask five questions, and it's not clear who these questions are being directed to, but it appears as though they are outside the hearing of Christ himself. It appears as though they are discussing these things in whispers and mumblings around the back of rooms as they are hearing Jesus teach and then discussing what they think about him and his words. Consider these five questions one at a time. First, where did this man get these things? Sometimes it's difficult to know where to put the emphasis in a sentence. When you're reading a sentence and it's in the scripture, where is the point of that sentence? Where does that peak? In this question, the emphasis is almost certainly on the word this. Where did this man get these things? Where did he, where did Jesus receive these? Already you can see in the heart of these villagers what is going on. What makes him any better than me? How is it that this man has risen above? How could this happen to Jesus and not for anyone else in this little town of Nazareth? But perhaps the emphasis should be here on the word get. Where did he get these things? How is it possible that this guy, Jesus, could have such great wisdom? Where did he get this? How did it come into his mind? We went to the same school, didn't we? How is it possible for him to speak the word the way he does? Now, if this question isn't telling enough, we come to the next question, which is, what wisdom has been given to him? Now, in this, scholars are de debate what this question actually means. Perhaps they're questioning whether or not Jesus' words are actually wisdom. Perhaps they are saying, is this genuine wisdom? Is this wisdom that has been given, or is it something else? Is it foolishness? Is it folly? Or are they simply saying, how is it that this wisdom was given to him and not to us? Because they are Jewish, they do believe in the Lord, they do believe in the Father, they do believe that wisdom is a gift from above. So, perhaps they're asking the question, why is it that this wisdom was given to him and not to someone else? Consider now, oh, I apologize. Now consider the third question we see in Mark chapter 6. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, this is an incredible question that they ask because they admit the fact that Jesus is a worker of miracles. They're not fooled. They, they're, they're, they don't think Jesus is just making this up. They know that Jesus is a mighty miracle worker. And they ask, how are such things done by his hands? 
How did he get this power? And it's a legitimate question. This is a question they should be asking. You're just going to see that they get the wrong response. Then notice the next question. If these questions to this point have not been telling about their hearts, this one will be. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Now, culturally, this doesn't seem too strange to us. Is this not the son of Mary? But in their day, this was very odd. This means for us a few things. First of all, you can tell 100% for sure that Mary had other children. That's important. If you come from a Roman Catholic background, it's very important to see. Mary did have other children. They're listed right here. But it's also important to know that this tells us Joseph is probably dead at the time. Because no one would ever say such a thing in a Jewish context if Joseph was alive. To say that he is the son of Mary is to deny his parentage. In other words, they know Joseph is not his father. If Joseph was his father, they would have said, is this not the child of Joseph? In other words, they believe Jesus to be an illegitimate child. They don't believe the story of Jesus' miraculous virgin birth. Rather, they believe that he is an illegitimate child. In America, there are many, many children who are born out of wedlock, and no one would know. There is no social stigma from that. No one carries that around or that doesn't follow them through their schooling or through their life. In fact, many children who are born out of wedlock don't even find out about it until they're an adult. This is very interesting because these people never get over it. This culture never gets over that. People who were considered to be illegitimate children would rarely get the same kind of job opportunities, would rarely get the same kind of contracts in their skills. People had a stigma that followed them through their entire life, and we see what Jesus must have dealt with as growing up considered an illegitimate child. The community never seems to have gotten over it. Is this not the child of Mary? You would never use the mother unless they denied the parentage of the father, which they were actually right to do so, because we know Christ's father is God. But notice now the final question, are not his sisters here with us? It's a strange question to end with. Aren't his sisters sitting here? Why would they ask such a question? When they are saying is, don't you see, this is Jesus. He's just the same little boy that grew up here in Nazareth. His family's still around. It's very possible that his brothers had gone on to uh, complete their skills in carpentry in other parts of Israel. But his sisters were still there. They were in the room. They were in the synagogue. They were encountering the same message. Aren't those his sisters right there? Isn't this the same guy we grew up listening to and talking to and going to school with and playing with? So we come to the end of these questions. And what I would like to do is I would like to consider four points this morning. The first is this, Nazareth's privilege. Consider the amazing privilege of the people of Nazareth. Jesus lived with them for about 25 years. I found this quote from J.C. Ryle I I felt was very appropriate. Let me borrow from him this morning. He says, never had any place on earth had such a privilege as Nazareth. For 30 years, which actually roughly was probably closer to 25, the Son of God himself resided in this small town. And he went to and fro in its streets. For 30 years he walked with God before the eyes of all its inhabitants, living a blameless, perfect life. But it was lost on them. 
They were not ready to believe the gospel. When the Lord came among them and taught in their synagogue, they would not believe that the one whose face they knew so well and who had lived among them, eating and drinking and dressing just like one of them, had any right to claim their attention. So they were offended at him. Now we see that here at the end of these questions that are asked. When they're asking these questions, you'll see at the end of verse 3, and they took offense at him. Instead of rejoicing in the good news that Jesus was preaching, we don't even know what Jesus said at the synagogue. It's not recorded for us. But I can tell you for a fact, Jesus is the best preacher that ever lived. And they're listening to the best sermon they could hear. And Jesus is speaking appropriately, filled with the Holy Spirit, exactly what they need to hear. And they are not interested. Instead, they are simply taking offense at the Son of God, who is humble. Think about this. I came from a small town. Chanute, Kansas, middle of nowhere. Literally, um, I lived outside of the small town, in the country, next to a bunch of cows and wheat. I don't really want to go back there. I don't have a desire to return to that place. Jesus is the Son of God who dwelt in heaven. Not only did he come down to earth... But he went to Nazareth, and then he leaves Nazareth, Nazareth, he grows up, and he goes back to that place, knowing that these people don't care about him, knowing that these people had treated him as an illegitimate child, knowing that these people don't want to listen to him, and still he goes back. And this, as we know, if we compare the scriptures, the other gospels, this is the second time he's returned. The first time that he returned, they they tried to throw him off a cliff, as we see in Luke chapter 4. Yet he returns. Jesus goes to this ungrateful people. If anyone should have recognized the Savior, it was these people. This summer, as we've been studying through Genesis, uh, God has constantly placed clues in front of us. He has shown us Genesis 1 through 11 over and over and over, these foreshadowings of the Savior and what he would be like and what he would accomplish and what he would teach. But they didn't just have Genesis. They had the whole of the Old Testament. Not only did they have Jesus living among them for 25 years, they had the entire Old Testament word. They knew the promise that there would be a seed of a woman. When Mary came to town and she said that this was a virgin birth, shouldn't they have picked up on that? That he has come, the seed of the woman, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? And if that wasn't clear enough, what about chapter 7, verse 14 of the book of Isaiah, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. What is a sign? It is something that is supposed to point you to what is coming. He will give you a sign that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. Shouldn't they have known him? Shouldn't they have listened to the story of Mary? Shouldn't they have realized this really is the Messiah? What about the prophets telling that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem? They knew where he was from. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 clearly proclaims, He is coming, the Messiah is coming, and he is coming to you, O Bethlehem, Apathra. He is coming to you, and they knew where he was born. Shouldn't they have connected the dots? Beyond that, these people saw the character of Jesus. They lived in the town. Nazareth is a small town. Now, for us in, in America... Small towns don't really exist the same way that they did in the ancient world. Small towns like Nazareth. Nazareth was built 
because there was a building project by Herod the Great. They designed the town so that carpenters could go there to put together the building materials for these great building projects so that they could cut down the wood and they could fashion it and shape it. That's why Joseph would go there to be a carpenter. This town was collected collected about 400 to 500 people at most. Everyone knew everyone, and everyone knew everyone's business. And everyone knew Jesus. I lived in a town of 10,000 people growing up, and I might not have known every person, but I could tell you something about them. If you gave me their last name, I could tell you who they were connected to. If you told me about them just a little bit, I could say, this is where they go to school. These are their friends. I knew about them, and that was 10,000 people. This is 400. Everyone knew Jesus. They knew who he was. They saw him day in and day out. Always honoring his parents as a child. Always being kind to his younger siblings. Always studying to the best of his ability in school. Always serving. Never bullying. Never gossiping. Never lying. Never cheating. Never stealing. Never slandering anyone. Which are the common sins of a small town. They had all the evidence right in front of them. But they were too proud to see it. Little did these people know that they themselves were fulfilling prophecy. These people were the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, or at least two. Let me give them to you. Psalm 69, verse 8. I am a foreigner in my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children, a messianic prophecy of Christ. And again, in Isaiah 53, 3, which was our Old Testament reading this morning, he was despised and rejected by men. Despised does not mean hated. It means that they thought nothing of him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We see that so clearly here. They think nothing of him. They hide their faces, as it were, from him. They give him no esteem, no honor, as Jesus will mention himself later in this passage. These people who had such a great privilege are the very ones who despised and rejected him. But let's not leave this in the past. Let's consider this as it fits today in our context. Everyone who hears the good news of the gospel has heard of this same Savior. Everyone has, who has heard the call of Christ himself, the good news about the Savior who has come, every single person who has the scripture in their hands, they have the good presentation of Christ. They have great privilege. I want to speak for just a moment, especially to the young people in the room. We love you, and we are thankful that you are here. We are glad that God has brought you to Redeeming Grace Fellowship. Please know that you have a great privilege. Many young people your age have no idea what the gospel is at all. They've never heard the truth about Jesus Christ. They might know the name. They might even know a few stories, but they don't know the gospel. They don't understand what it is that Jesus came and died on the cross for sinners. Young people, I want to say to you today, don't ignore that privilege. I've seen this many times. Young ones grow. They hear this good news. They listen to the same sermons, the same gospel messages over and over in church. And then they grow up, they go to college, and they reject everything. And they reject the privilege that they have heard the good news about Christ. That is what the people of Nazareth did. They were faithless people. I want to call you to genuine faith in Jesus Christ this morning. If you are a believer, even if you're not young, if you're not a believer, even if you're not young, come to Christ in saving faith today. Please do not reject 
the privilege that you have heard the gospel. It's important to know exposure to the gospel is not a guarantee of saving faith. Just because you've heard it doesn't mean you know it or believe it. So place your faith in Jesus Christ. Do not take offense at the Lord. Rather, turn to him for salvation. Uh, Let's move on now to point number two, which is the honor of the prophet. Look with me to verse four. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor. In other words, every prophet has honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Notice the way that Jesus' statement unfolds here. He, he basically, he starts with the larger and he gets down to the more and more intimate levels of his social circles. First, he mentions his hometown. A prophet has no honor in his hometown and then he shrinks it down or among his relatives and then he shrinks it down even more so or even among his household. And when he says this, I'm curious if he's looking at his sisters who are sitting in the room. A prophet has no honor except in his own hometown among his relatives and in his household. On the one hand, this means something like this. If any of my children, A's, Petra, Athens, any one of them, were ever to become the president of the United States, which would be wonderful, I would would prefer that to our current situation. If any one of them were to become president of the United States, to me, that would still be Ace, the little boy who loves catching ladybugs in the backyard, the little boy uh, who loves to uh, build things and put things together. It would still be Petra, my little girl, who got a gold medal for brushing her teeth and a silver medal for how well she could use the potty chair. It will still be Athens, the little boy who put Ashley's phone into the glass of water. These little kids, they're, it's, it's, it's my kids. They're always going to be my babies. And in some sense, as the small community would look at Jesus, they would, they would be looking at him and thinking, that's the little boy that grew up in our synagogue. That's the little child who came through my class in school. That's the little boy that sat next to me in math class. They would be looking at him and saying, he's just, a, he's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. What's the big deal here? But on the other hand, this issue goes much deeper than mere sentimentality and the inability to see a young man grow to a position of great significance. These people are looking at Jesus and they're thinking, we were classmates. Now you're my rabbi? Now you're supposed to be my teacher? I was your teacher and now you're supposed to be wiser than I? What makes you so great, Jesus? Jesus quotes a phrase, no prophet is without honor except in his own hometown. This phrase is a well-known proverb in this time. He is not making this up at the moment. Oftentimes, Jesus would borrow uh, from existing things, and he would use them for the sake of the gospel. Here, this phrase, we know the first time we are aware of its use is actually in Greece 200 years earlier than this, and it was a common statement around the region. So Jesus borrows this statement. They would have known what he was saying. This is not something that he does. You know, sometimes he'll say things, and people are like, what is he talking about? As soon as he says it, they know what he's saying. You guys think you're too good for me? You think you're, you're too good to, to listen to the words that I'm saying? Now, for the, for the most part, when people use that phrase, they themselves are being arrogant. They themselves are saying, I have something important. I am better than you in this area. I know more than you do in this area. But the only person who can actually do that is Christ. And Jesus says, Don't you see that I should be your prophet? I am the prophet. I am the greater prophet than Moses. And I am proclaiming to you the eternal truth of God. And you're not even listening. You're not giving me any honor. I am worthy of all honor. Now, I am not worthy of honor. 
I, I stand here, and, and, and if I was to declare to you to bow down to me, that would be incredibly sinful. Jesus Christ goes into this place, and he's asking them to listen to him. He is asking them to hear the good news. He is serving them. He is giving a gift to them, and they're saying, no, thank you. What arrogance on their part, not on his. He is worthy of honor, and they are not giving him the honor that is due. These people, we look at them and we say, these people want nothing of Jesus. They thought nothing of him. They think in their minds that Jesus is just some illegitimate backwater boy from this out, he was outgrown his place here in this little town of Nazareth. Please let me take a moment to relate this to us. You're not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. But, what, uh, but you may know what it's like to have your family or your parents or your circles that are close to you reject you because of Christ. Or at least to reject your message. They might say, I'm happy for you. I'm happy that you're happy. And sometimes they'll even say, I'm happy that you're happy because that's what's most important. I've heard that so many times. That's not what's most important. But they'll reject out and out your Savior. They reject out and out the beliefs that you have in Christ. It seems as though still to this day, the hardest people to get to hear you are the people that are the, the closest to you, the people that watched you grow up, the people that raised you, the people that your siblings with. It is hardest to connect with them and share the gospel. However, we must avoid something that can easily sneak in. There's a temptation. I feel it. I experience it. And I fail in this area constantly. It is that people will say, well, Jesus wasn't accepted in his hometown, so I won't be either. So why bother? Why even try? Notice that Jesus went there even though he knew he was going to be rejected. Jesus knew all things. He knew how they would respond. He knew that they would not turn and repent. He didn't fail to share the gospel with them. He didn't fail to share the good news of the kingdom with them. Do not say, I can't do it because they won't accept me. Do it anyway. Be wise as a serpent, be as harmless as a dove, and go proclaim the gospel to the lost, your family, your hometown, to the, even your own household. We'll move on now to point number three, Jesus' power. Please follow along once again in your Bibles as we read verse 5. It says, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now this, this verse is, is really weird. I mean, if you're just reading for the first time through the Bible and you come to this, every time you have ever seen any kind of obstacle come up in Jesus' ministry so far, he has power to overcome that. He does something miraculous every single time. And as you read through the Gospel of Mark and you get to this and it says that he was unable, you stop and say, what? Unable? Jesus unable to do something? What in the world is going on here? We have never seen that, and we will never see it again here in the book of Mark. This is Jesus. He's the one who calmed the sea. He's the one who cast out demons. Yet he's unable? I had a boss at the hotel where I worked as I was working my way through seminary who would occasionally try to disprove Christianity. He hated the gospel. He hated the Lord. And he would... Uh, Occasionally come to me, I worked a night shift and there was often not much going on. And if he was in the building, he would come down and uh, he would say to me things like this. He said, do you believe God is omnipotent? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Do you believe Jesus is God? Yes, I do. Well, then if God is all powerful and if Jesus is God, then why can't Jesus do any mighty works in Nazareth? 
It says so right here in your Bible, Caleb. Why can't he do anything? Is he powerless? Obviously, he's either not God or your God is very limited. And then he would say the same thing that he would always say at the end of these questions. Some God he is. I had to politely explain to this man that God is all-powerful. But that does not mean that God can do anything he wants. God is limited, but he's not limited in power. God is limited by his character. For example, the Bible teaches us that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. Hebrews chapter 6, 17-18 says this, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things... And here's one of them that he hasn't mentioned yet, that it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That, that parenthetical statement is in there. It's just assumed by the writer of Hebrews in which it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. For example, if Jesus said, if God said, there's a tree over there, then a tree would exist. It would come into existence. He spoke everything into existence. He cannot lie. Whatever he says is and occurs. Romans chapter 3, verse 4 says it this way. Let God be true and every man a liar. God cannot, for example, also be tempted or tempt anyone. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. There are many times in the Bible, actually there's about 11 of them, if you search through the scripture, things that it says God cannot or does not do, because, it's not because he can't do it because of his power, but because of his character. So what is it about this situation that results in Jesus not being able to do any mighty works in Nazareth? First, as a side note, it mentions still that he does do miracles. He heals people. So for me, in my perspective, if somebody comes into the room and Steve Schultz is sitting there with a massive like, uh, cough attack and he's like going into asthmatic you know, spasms over here, falling on the ground, and somebody comes in and touches him on the head and he gets up and he's fine, that to me is miraculous. Jesus heals people. He goes in and he heals people. That's a miracle. But it says he does no mighty works. These are the big miracles. He doesn't do anything massive or over the top. They're like, oh, this is, this is it, Jesus? You're just healing a few people? I mean, this would blow me away. But here they say, he did, he did no mighty works in this town. So that's just a side note. He does heal people. He does still do miracles. But in order to understand why he was unable to do any mighty works, we must first understand the relationship that Jesus had to his Father, God the Father. Jesus lived in eternal, perfect submission to the Father. He always obeyed every time. In John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus explains the parameters of his own ministry. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. He's out there doing miracles. He's out there doing great ministry. He can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So if God does not give him the green light or go ahead, he is not doing any miracles at all. He is not doing any mighty works unless God says, do it. So what is limiting him is not the faith of the people. What is limiting them is the go-ahead by God the Father. Jesus did not have the ability to do these mighty works because God was not leading him to do so. I believe that this verse is shouting to the reader 
that God is holding back, that God the Father is holding back a blessing from the people of Nazareth that if they had only listened and believed would have burst forth over them. Pastor and Bible teacher John MacArthur explains it this way. He says, It was not that he lacked the supernatural power to perform miracles. Rather, there was no reason to do miracles, since the purpose of his miracles was to attest to the truth and reveal himself as Lord and Messiah, and thus lead sinners to saving faith. But this last sentence is key. He says, Because the people of Nazareth had already set their rejection in stone, miracles were unnecessary. Some Christians have taken this passage to mean that God is limited by the lack of faith that an individual will have. That God is somehow unable to heal us or change us or work in us if we display weak or limited faith. We don't have time to fully debate this this morning, although there is good reason to fight this false doctrine. Uh, But let me just give a few quick responses, just a very brief rebuttal that you can build off of in your own uh, theological framework And the argument is simple. It just says this. Jesus often healed people, regularly healed people, who displayed no faith in him. Faith is not a prerequisite in Jesus' ministry for healing. Quickly, here are a few examples of stories that you will know well, just to illustrate. First, we see in Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals ten lepers. Ten lepers. How many of those lepers show faith in Christ? One. One comes back. One says thank you. One shows genuine faith in Jesus Christ. How many of them had faith? One. How many were healed? Ten. The demoniac in the previous chapter, as we were studying through the book of Mark, that man came approaching Christ in violence, so much so that I can see the disciples shrinking back in fear and Jesus standing with a face like flint towards this man with a demon. And he he cast the demon out of the man when the man was ready to be violent towards Christ. What have you to do with us, Jesus? We know who you are. This man had no power to display faith in Christ. The demons were completely overrunning his sensibilities. This man still was healed. The demon was cast out of him regardless of the fact he was showing no faith. And finally, just as an example, although there are many, many more that you could find, is the man who was crippled at the pool of Bethesda. We see this in the book of John chapter 5. The man who is at the pool of Bethesda, he he is healed by Jesus, and he doesn't even know who Jesus is until Jesus explains afterwards. This man has no concept. It's not like we have Facebook back then so people could see, oh, look at that guy. There's a picture of him. No one knew what Jesus looked like until they saw him in person. This man encountered Christ. He heals the man, and then he learns that he's Jesus. He showed no faith first. Jesus healed him first. Jesus did not require the people to have great faith in order to heal them or do miracles. Jesus rather used miracles to develop great faith. He used miracles to show people the kingdom and the power of God. Let's now move, move on to our, <clears throat> our final point for this morning, the marveling prince. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went, to, he went among, about among the villages teaching. Now, the more that you've experienced in life, <laughs> the, the more it takes to amaze you. Uh, you've, um, you've probably encountered people like this before. People who, you begin to tell them a story and it's like, Oh yeah, well let me, let me tell you something that I've seen. Let me tell you something I've done. Let me tell you something even better. Let me tell you something even greater. You think that's a good restaurant? Well, then you've got to try this one because it's so much nicer. 
there's always something that they've experienced that is greater than you. Well, Jesus, think about who he is. This is God, the creator of the universe. This is Jesus. He's performed miracles. He has calmed the sea. He's cast out demons. He raised a girl from the dead. And he spoke everything that exists into existence. He is currently, as he is standing there, upholding the universe by his own power. This is Jesus. What has he not seen? What could possibly make him marvel? What could cause his jaw to drop to the ground? The lack of these people's faith. The lack of response. He is proclaiming himself to them. He is pouring himself out before them. And they are standing there in rooted in rebellion and dedicated to depravity and refusing to budge one inch towards believing in Jesus Christ. And he was amazed at the lack of faith. He was amazed at the lack of faith in these people. They had failed to believe the words of the Old Testament. They had failed to believe in all of the prophecies. They had failed to believe in Christ's words himself. Later in Jesus' ministry, he would express just how far this kind of unbelief goes when he says in Luke 16.31, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Even if somebody rises from the dead, they're not going to believe. Do you know that unbelief, the opposite of faith, it runs deep in every single person. We are so naturally geared toward a, a rejection of God that even if we saw someone come out of the grave and come back to life, we would still deny him. Just a week before Jesus dies on the cross, we or two weeks rather, before Jesus dies on the cross, we see Lazarus come out of the grave. Do you know how many people were at his funeral? He was a famous, wealthy man, two miles from, from Jerusalem. And Jesus calls him after being dead for several days out of the tomb. People knew that he was dead. He was already stinking and rotting in that heat of the wilderness of that area. They knew Jesus raised someone from the dead. They still killed him. They still put him on a cross. Unbelief runs deep. Perhaps you're here today and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You see in your own life that unbelief runs deep. You see, Lazarus is not the only one who raised from the dead. Jesus himself raised from the dead. And not, not because with Lazarus, he had no power to raise himself. Jesus called him out of that tomb. Jesus, by the power of God, he is himself God, raised from the dead. He raised from the dead. And will you still not believe? Place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Faith is not just wishing for something. It's not just hoping that it's true. We're hoping that something will happen. Faith means that you trust in Christ. It means that you recognize that all authority belongs to him and that you have reason to trust him with your future and with every aspect of your heart. You want him to do whatever he wants to do because you trust that he is good. And you want to be saved by him because you know that he is the only one who will forgive you of your sins. There's only one other time that we ever see Jesus marvel in the Bible. I mean, there's only two possible things that we can see occurring here, and both of them relate to faith. The first one here, when they see the lack of faith, the other was our New Testament reading when the centurion responded in faith to Christ. This man says, Jesus, I, you don't have to come to my house. I know, I'm a man who has authority. If I say to one, go here, he does. And to another, come here, he, he, he obeys. All you have to do is say the word. 
and healing will occur. And Jesus turns to the crowd. He turns to Israel. This is a Roman centurion. The only reason this guy is here is to oppress the Jews. And he turns to the Jewish audience around him and says to them, I have not seen such great a faith even amongst the host of Israel. And he marveled at the man's great faith. I have to say, I hope no one in this room will ever give cause for Christ to marvel at their unbelief. I hope that God is not looking right now at the hearts of rebellion and saying, how could you hear the gospel and reject over and over and over? But I pray that God would be pleased to give the gift of saving faith to every single person who hears this message. And beyond that, I pray that our church here in Massapequa will be able to proclaim that good news and that this entire region would respond in saving faith to that good news of Jesus Christ. So to close, I want to encourage you to read ahead through the rest of Mark. Read ahead through chapter 6 as we prepare for next week. You see, I think a large part of the reason that Jesus went to Nazareth, he takes this geographical diversion to go to his hometown right now, is because what we are going to see next week is Jesus send out the disciples to do their own missionary work. And he wants to show them, I am rejected by my hometown. I am rejected by the people closest to me. If you think people are going to listen to you, you might be surprised. There will be some who don't. And I think he is preparing them and showing them that I identify with you in rejection. They, they reject you because they first reject me. If you have felt rejected, if you have felt like people have denied you or have, have scoffed at you or have thought nothing of you, praise God for that. Because it's truly an honor to be rejected for the sake of the Savior. I will close with the words of Acts chapter 5. We see the disciples after the resurrection of Christ sharing the good news in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 5 we see these words. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Jesus was dishonored. If you feel dishonored, praise God for that, that you are worthy to be dishonored for the name of Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the privilege of carrying the good news, that that same gospel truth, that presentation of the truth of the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming in Nazareth, we continue to be able to proclaim that good news to this day, and until the end of time, we will be able to proclaim that Jesus Christ saves sinners. Lord, we thank you that he died on the cross for people like us who do not deserve him. Lord, I pray for every one of us here that we would be faithful, just like Christ, to go to our own hometowns, to our own families, and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that even when people do reject us, you would give us the ability to stand boldly and proclaim knowing that we are standing with you at our back and that if God is for us, who can be against us? So, Lord, let us go out in boldness and in faith, declaring the word of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. At this time, you can stand as we... Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.